The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is such a joy to be with you today as we welcome our very special guest, Dr. Willie James Jennings. Dr. Jennings is an associate professor of systematic theology and Africana studies at Yale Divinity School. He is an author of multiple works, but what we'll be focusing on today is his 2010 work called The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race. And in that book, he poses kind of this central question, what has Christianity, a religion premised upon neighborly love, failed in its attempts to heal social divisions? So that question is what we will be talking today to Dr. Jennings about, who is also a pastor. And I believe that this conversation will speak to you uh, deeply as it has to me. As a programming note, if you have not yet listened to the Jamar Tisby episode from earlier this year in August, I'd take some time with that one as well. The perspectives of Jamar and his view on the church's complicity in racism, combined with the narrative that Dr. Jennings is about to lay out for us, has been echoing in my mind and causing me to look at what it means to be a Christian who is knowing my neighbor and authentically standing with them. So I offer that to you as a next step after you are done listening today. All right, enough preface. Here is Dr. Willie Jennings. Dr. Jennings, before we uh, dive into the very deep end of our conversation, first, thank you for being on the show today. I know that you are mid, you're mid break and you're in sabbatical and writing and getting ready for classes. And so just thank you for spending time with us. My pleasure. Yes, sir. But I wanted to ask you a bit about what your role is at the, at the very prestigious Yale Divinity School. Well, thanks for having me on. I teach theology, Christian theology and Africana Studies at the Divinity School there and uh, work with the doctoral students and the undergraduates as they are interested. <laughs> yeah, as they're interested. That's awesome. And I know you teach systematic theology. Um, I don't want people to get lost in seminary ease and feel <laughs> like they don't know what. Can you explain a little bit what systematic theology is and why it resonates with you deeply enough that you would want to teach that particular school of thought? Yeah, systematic theology is the study of the beliefs and practices of uh, Christians as they understand their life with God. And it is also, it is the study of God. Theology is really the ongoing conversation with God. So it touches on matters of spirituality, it touches on matters of ethics, it touches on everything uh, because God is involved in everything. So um, I'm interested in people who um, talk to God and who want to talk about God. <laughs> hmm. Were you, before this, were, have you been a pastor in like a, in the more like traditional, like pastoring a church sense, or have you always been in the academia? I've always been academia, but I've always been involved with the church as well. I'm an ordained minister in the Baptist church and uh, um, I'm married to a minister as well. And uh, we've always been involved with the church. 
but we, but I've always been involved with the academy as well. Got it. Interesting. So pertinent to our conversation today, and I just want to preface this by saying it's going to seem like for the next <laughs> five, six questions that we're leading down like a, a negative road, but there's a whole arc to the whole conversation. So I'm just prefacing both the listener and you with that. But you've written just a few massively important works. Uh, and from what I can gather by social media and internet stalking a little bit, you're in the midst of continuing and writing another one, which I'm excited about. But I wanted to talk today specifically about your 2010 book, uh, which is titled The Christian Imagination, Theology and Origins of Race. Um, that's a big book to write. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? I mean, just to even think that you could write that. I mean, that just that takes a lot of interest and a lot of drive. So what piqued your interest and, and drive to dive so deeply into that subject? Well, I was raised uh, in a Christian home and in a very Christian city, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I was always haunted by um, two realities. Uh, the one is how deeply Christian my town was. So it was full of churches, full of Christian publishers, um, full of people who were deeply committed Christian, but it was also an incredibly racist place. And I could not understand how those two things existed not simply side by side, but weaving in and out of each other. The deep commitment to Christianity, but also the deep commitment to the racial status quo, the deep commitment to um, racist and racial ways of looking at the world and white supremacy. And so I, I've been driven uh, all my life to try to make sense of what it means to be Christian given this reality of racial existence, racial being, if you will. And I've, I've you know, been like a private investigator. I've been tracing out how these things have come to be. And as you have like traced this out, you have come up with uh, this work and kind of the, the central question, it, I mean, the book broadly poses this question, why has Christianity which is a religion based on the idea of loving your neighbor failed in its attempts to heal social divisions. And I mean, is that fair to say that's the broad thesis of the book right. that you then work to answer throughout it? Yeah. So the question I guess I want to ask is that question, but that's too broad because you wrote a whole book on it. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> and people should read the book and I don't want you to have to burn through, uh, through it all here on the podcast, but I'm curious about the early historic Christianity what were the first inklings that Christianity wasn't healing divisions? Well, Christianity began as a profound surprise. And the surprise at the heart of Christianity are people called Gentiles, uh, people who are not Jewish, who came to believe in one who presented himself as Israel's Messiah, better known as Jesus of Nazareth. And um, that surprise that Gentiles would come to worship the God of Israel, come to love the God of Israel, is at the heart of Christianity. In the New Testament, the way it's put is that we were outsiders brought in by grace into the story of God with Israel. And like anybody who was a guest and brought into the home of another, that is a sign of incredible grace 
uh, that one is allowed to come in and that one enters in. And uh, one always remembers that you were a guest brought into someone else's home, someone else's story. It's kind of like somebody who marries into a family. You know, the first time you come over and then they look you over and they think, ooh, who is this person? And, you know, you're hoping that you will be accepted. And, you know, you're there uh, because you love one that's a part of those people. Now, to make a very long and complex story simple for your listeners, Christians began very early to despise that story. They got tired of repeating that they were the ones brought into the story of another people by grace, thus uh, forming with those people a, a new reality of peoplehood. Christians started saying instead, well, actually what is the case is that we are God's people and everyone else has been brought into us. That is, we are the host and everyone else is guests into our world. And this terrible reversal meant that Christians began to see themselves as the chosen people of God. The, in theological language, it's the word election, elected, like you elect somebody. They start to see themselves as the chosen people of God. And Jewish people, Israel, as those who are not chosen, those who have been rejected by God. So that God replaced Israel with Christians. Now, to make, again, a very complex story, very straightforward, what happened is that that horrible reversal grew like a cancer inside Christianity. And it became a form of unrelenting, comprehensive pride that lodged itself deeply in the world we now call Europe and among the multiple peoples that we call Europeans. Now, the horror there, Eddie, is when they came to what we call the New Worlds, as Christians, they came having been bred inside of, shaped inside of this horrible hubris that imagined that they were God's chosen and that everything in the world um, was for them, that they were the ones who would bring salvation, bring light, bring enlightenment to the rest of the world because God had chosen them. And so that fundamental cancerous idea is really the energy inside of modern racism, inside of white supremacy, inside of whiteness. So many people who study race, white supremacy, racism, they think about it sociologically or philosophically or politically, but most people who do don't understand this fundamental theological, or should I say spiritual root of it, which means they can't really get at it. And because what's, what's at the heart of it is a distorted vision born of Christianity that is not Christianity itself, but born of it. Wow. So to that end, is there just a fundamental and unfixable flaw in Christianity that will not allow Christians to engage meaningfully in areas of issues of social justice and race because of their inherent just centrism about who they are? <laughs> is that, I mean, is, is there a fundamental flaw in the design or am I missing? Oh, no, not at all. It's not a flaw in the design. 
Think of it like a really um, aggressive, creative, ingenious weed. (laughs) (laughs) That, you know, you you have this beautiful flower bed and you think you've gotten the weeds out, but this weed just kind of moved over and then slid. And here's the thing about this weed. It can present itself to look as if it's the flower. So that, you know, to get at it, you've got to be able to discern the difference between the weed and the flower. And if you're not discerning, you kill the flower thinking you're getting the weed or you think the you think it's all weeds. <laughs> I said, no, it's a weed that's learned how to mimic the flower, learn how to wrap itself around the flower. And so it's a form of what I call um, pride. Now, of course, as I said, it's inside of what develops. There are other things that come into play that um, create what we, what we now call full-blown uh, racial existence, full-blown whiteness. And that is when these um, Europeans, let's call them proto-Europeans, because be, it's a little anachronistic to call them Europeans because they're not, you know, Europe hasn't really been formed in nations in that regard. But let's just say for, for, for the sake of our conversation that they are Europeans. So they come to the new world and they come and there are two other characteristics of their coming. One, they come with incredible, unprecedented power. Power over people, power over what these people will do, and they come utterly awed by the new worlds. You have to imagine what it's like, what it was like for people whose whose lives had been lived in, say, a 50 to 100 mile radius. All of a sudden, you come to a place called Peru, or you come to a place like Virginia, or you come to the Rocky Mountains, or you come to California, and you see it for the first time, without roads, without buildings, just in its majestic beauty. You come to the Midwest, and we, we always have to remember that there was a time when the Midwest was much like old growth trees that exist in Northern California, that as one uh, environmental historian said, a bird could um, go from tree to tree from mid-America right up to right up through Canada <laughs> because there was, I mean, so the, the density and the beauty and the majesty and the all overwhelming reality of the new world. But here's the reality. They came and the first thought they had as they saw this, this vast, beautiful land and these incredibly diverse peoples everywhere, well, because peoples are always with the lands, the first thought that came to their head was, this is mine. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Right. So, so you have to add, you have to add the the greed. You have to add the um, the efforts to try to make sense of this new world. And out of that, two things, two things emerge, right? There is the great desire among these people to understand the new world and the great desire of these new people to own the new world. (laughs) So, so much horror developed, Eddie, between the desire to know and the desire to have, the desire to possess and the desire to understand. And so much destruction happened as Europeans described the peoples and the places of the new world and stole the peoples and the places of the new world. And so that work of description and that work of taking are two sides of the same coin. Now, why I say all that? Because 
you have to add those layers to understand how this thing that began with Christianity soon grew beyond Christianity as the reality within which racial being, racial consciousness, and white supremacy comes to life. Right. And so this becomes a very difficult reality because we just covered a millennia or more between the beginning foundations of Christianity between Jews and Gentiles and you know, the Europeans treatment of indigenous people and not to mention slavery in America. And so there is this deeply ingrained mentality that you just outlined. And so I guess the, I start to feel this weight of like, how does this break? How then for something that has been this conquering mentality that has been so uh, ingrained for so long, I almost said successful for so long, but it's so a effective in its horrificness for so long. How does that break? It breaks because it, it can break and it, and it does break because of, of several wonderful factors. One, the number of indigenous peoples, the number of, of slaves and former slaves who became Christian and saw it differently. And this is what we must always remember. There were many who became Christian and saw it differently. Now, I want to be clear because the response to Christianity by so many indigenous peoples and so many African peoples was threefold, three different ways of responding. First, some just say, okay, this Christianity is a bunch of nonsense. Don't even bother. Don't even dare talk to me about any of it. It's all nonsense. The second response was, okay, you want me to be a Christian? I'll be a Christian because you got a gun in my face. And if I don't be, if I'm not a Christian, you will kill me. So yes, I'm going to be a Christian but I'm not actually a serious Christian. I'm just, I'm just going to continue to fight for my liberation however I can fight, and I'll use this Christianity to do it, but I really don't care about what you believe. But then there was a third response, and that third response were, were those who said, actually, I am a Christian, but the Christianity you're putting to me is really problematic. And in this third group, we can split it into two. There were those in this third group who said, actually, everything you're teaching me, everything you're presenting to me is exactly the right. And so I'm going to accept into myself the horrible derogatory way you look at me and the destructive way you look at the world. But I am a Christian. But the, the other group in that third group said, no, I'm not going to accept the way you look at me, nor am I going to accept your destructive view of the world, nor am I going to accept that this is real Christianity. It's real in the sense that you call yourself Christian, but it's not real in the sense that you are living as a Christian. And that group grew and remained strong. Now, here's the thing about it. That group never separated itself from those, those other groups. You know, the other ones who said Christianity is a waste of time or, you know, I'm going to be Christian in the day and then something else at night. And the, the, they never separated themselves from those others because they understood that they were in a, they were in a shared struggle. But this group um, saw a different faith and they joined with those people of European descent who also saw a different faith. That is, they resisted stepping into the power and privileges and vision of whiteness. They resisted and they joined forces with those who saw a different Christianity. So there's always been that, what we call witness, right in the heart of Christianity, warring against this other reality of Christianity. 
But what's also the case is that for so many people, the becoming white was always a process filled with pain. You see, Eddie, there was a time, especially in this country, when people who came to this country understood that they didn't come as white. They had to achieve their whiteness by stripping away their immigrant past, stripping away their immigrant ways, forgetting their immigrant languages, changing their names, becoming the embodiment of a white Anglo-Saxon male or female, but in this case, even females who become males in that regard, and present themselves as exemplar white, exemplary white, and exemplars of whiteness. So now, in order to understand what I'm saying, you have to think about whiteness not as a biology and not as phenotype, but as a way of being in the world. Because that's what it has been. It's been a way of being in the world. And so there's always been um, a strong, very powerful counter voice, counter narrative, anti hegemonic, as we say in, in uh, um, highfalutin academic language, a way of being in the world that pushes against this dominant vision of a Christian faith. What I call a vision of faith that challenges racial faith. And so to continue with that, kind of, your book was released in 2011, yet it feels to me like there is an application that is for lack of a better summation, very 2020. Mm-hmm. How do you see the intersections of Christianity and this overall movement, Black Lives Movement, just this call for justice that is happening right now? How do you see these two things intersecting? And how do you see Christianity uh, both showing up enhance- and enhancing or detracting or some other answer? <laughs> well, this is a powerful moment where people for the first time both Christian and non-Christian, people for the first time are now being asked to look seriously at their whiteness. Unfortunately, many people don't know what, don't know how to even begin to look at that. And here is where understanding what Christianity's role in the formation of whiteness is so important. But it is a crucial moment for Christians and for so many others to start to see exactly what this is. If we think about whiteness as a way of life and think about Christianity as a way of life, it is possible now for people who have never had to think about the difference to actually start to imagine the difference between Christianity as a way of life and whiteness as a way of life. And here, it's great if they could follow the example of so many people of color who over the centuries have always try to mark a difference, Eddie, a difference between the vision of them as Black or Asian or Latino or Filipino, the the vision of who they are, not just stereotypes, but the layers of vision of who they are and the ways in which they've had to negotiate and push against all those images from who they actually are trying to pull out pieces from those images that are true and healthy and leave the things that are malignant and destructive. There's so much to be learned from that for for so many people 
who all their life have understood themselves to be white down to the bone, as it were, down into their biology, and for whom whiteness has always presented as positive. So if something's been always presented as positive, you would never think that it could possibly ever be seen as negative, except if you're being accused of something that you feel like you've never done, like being a white racist. And so why are you attacking me? But the problem is, is that without any sense of the history of whiteness as a way of being that works itself down into our educational systems, down especially into the way our neighborhoods and communities are formed, then it would, it's very difficult to know how to move forward now. So moving forward now is a challenge for so many people. As I said, for, for the first group, it's, it's a challenge for so many people of European descent, so many people who have understood themselves comfortably as white, to actually start to think through it. But it's also a challenge for so many people of color for whom, you know, as far as they are concerned, especially folks, you know, the, the many folks I know in their 20s and early 30s, for whom Christianity and the church and religion, as far as they're concerned, you know, what good, what good has it done in challenging these deep and stubborn structures of white supremacy and racism? And so the challenge is to, to actually see that there is something beyond this malignant, cancerous form of Christianity and to see that in order to really get at the problem of white supremacy and racism, if you don't touch the spiritual roots of it, and if you don't understand how not just to see the spiritual roots, but to address them, then it's going to be very difficult for us to move forward. So within Christianity, there is a way to address this. As I like to say to so many Christians, the first thing Christians do and the first thing that Christianity offers, if it takes its own story seriously, is that it represents to the world and to itself its life of joining, its life of entering into another people, not to take them over, but to offer themselves in love and friendship and life together as the way in which it witnesses its love for God. So Christianity at its heart is supposed to be a religion that cultivates belonging, Eddie, cultivates belonging across all manner of boundary, because that's how we became Christian. We became Christian because there were Jews who crossed serious borders and boundaries and came to us, led by the Spirit of God. Now, so what that means for so many people who are, you know, especially so many people who are outside of Christianity or who just think Christianity, look at Christianity with great suspicion, is that I would hope that they would not miss the great power that is at the heart of Christianity a power that can overturn the racial condition, can overturn white supremacy, if it is taken seriously. And if it's not taken seriously, if we imagine that we can overcome white supremacy simply by a change of attitude or change of behavior, or even change of public policy, without thinking about these deeper spiritual matters, and by thinking about the practices on the ground and in life together that constantly nurture these matters, then it's going to be very difficult for us to challenge uh, what needs to be challenged today.
you kind of touched on this in, in what you just said, but I want to make sure that it's real clear because you are also a pastor. And uh, if I could ask you, I guess you never take it off, but to make sure that your pastor hat is <laughs> on right now. Because um, for some of us, we are in the midst of, I think, reconciling our beliefs with the actions of the church. And I know that a lot of people right now feel disillusioned to Christianity, to the church, and I think for some, it makes people stop thinking that the church actually cares and that we have to move away from this stodgy, broken institution if we really want to help. I know you don't agree to that, but I'm, let's say we're sitting in our pastor's office right now and someone with a lot of passion and a lot of intelligence asks that question. What do you offer them in, in these times? Well, I would tell them that they're right, that um, the church in many ways has uh, failed and continues to fail. But here's what we want we want to do is we want to help everyone kind of see the original dilemma, which is a good dilemma. And that is the church at its heart are people who are trying to yield their lives to the spirit of God and fail very often in that yielding. But that failure is never permanent because the Spirit of God is always pulling on us, calling us toward those we would prefer not to be with. And this at the heart is what the church is. The church is a calling to life together with those you would prefer not to be with. And that's the challenge at the very heart of all of this. And it's the challenge in the way our neighborhoods are constructed. It's a challenge in the way we engage one another. It's a challenge in the way we sustain friendship and relationships, even when they become very difficult. The heart of Christianity is God reconciling the world to God's self and making us all ambassadors of reconciliation, drawing us all into the work of life together, which is really challenging work. So what that means is that Carry forward every critique of the church and realize that every critique of the church is exactly right because it comes back to the fundamental challenge to yield a life to God as God draws us toward one another. So I mean, what I would say to people is don't give up on the church if, in fact, you believe that the only way for us to move forward on this planet is to find a, a significant dense, rich life together. Because if that's what you want, then what you want is exactly what the Spirit of God is calling us toward and is exactly what constitutes the work of the church at its very best. So for my students who are not Christian, but when they when they come to me and they say, you know, I want to do this and I want to do that, I, I think that's great. And, you know, then I'll say to them, well, you know that what you're describing, you know, is church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what you're describing is a community of people who shun practices of exclusion that build deep and abiding affirmation and honesty and accountability and who fight for one another for the flourishing of life. Well, guess what? That's church. <laughs> now, it's, it's what church is called to be. So even if one says, I'm just going to work outside the church, what you're actually doing, I mean, I'm not going to try to make everybody a Christian who doesn't want to believe. That's fine. But the actions themselves are not in a different world from the actions that Christians are called to take every day. And now, of course, what makes this so difficult 
is that we live in the midst of people who have been taught what I call a different reality of belonging. And that is, um, they're, they're, in the South, we used to have this phrase, color, kin, and kind. <laughs> and um, there are so many people who their very structures of belonging are shaped by color, kin, and kind. They cannot imagine a reality of belonging, a rich, deep, dense reality of belonging that is greater than color, kin, and kind. And unfortunately, as long as people are trapped in that tragic sense of belonging and cannot imagine a new form of belonging in which my joining with others does not mean the eradication of me or my people, but their expansion in with the lives of others. As long as we cannot step toward that, then it's going to be very difficult to sustain any significant political or social or economic change that we need because as you know, when we are still caught in the desires of nation states, still caught in the uh, operations and machinations of uh, multinational corporations, still caught in um, the clannish and even tribalistic ways of thinking about life together. And as long as that's the case, in order to find a way to live in this on this planet, we're going to need people who actually can see beyond those borders and boundaries, never to um, dismiss or eradicate or to destroy difference, but to see difference aimed at its fullness, at its full blossoming in and with the life of lives of others. So the last thing I just want to say to you about this, Eddie, because this is really important. As a Christian, here's, here's what I understand, especially when it comes to my people and the struggles of my people as an African-American. It's one thing for me to know my story, understand my struggle, remember my story and my struggle, remember my people and the sacrifices they made. It's another thing for you to know my struggle, for you to understand my people, and for you to remember my people and my struggle and to make that memory a part of you. Now, here's the important thing about what I just said. At the heart of Christianity, that is the gift we are supposed to offer to the world. A remembering together of one another's people. A remembering together of one another's story. A remembering together of the good and the beautiful and what must never be lost among our peoples. And together to sing our songs. Together to learn our songs. And in the midst of that togetherness, to create new songs, new stories, new memories. Now, of course, some things we'll decide together that we don't need to constantly remember. But there'll be other things that we will want to profoundly hold on to. And some of those things will be painful to remember, but we will remember them together. Because what we're aiming toward is life together. What we're aiming for is to raise up generations of people who all they know is a life of belonging that reaches across borders and boundaries. That's all they know. They don't know the other. 
And this is what I would hope, especially for the 20-somethings listening in on your podcast. This is what I would hope that they would catch hold of. Here's the question for them. How are you imagining a new reality of belonging, even if you're not a Christian? How are you imagining a new reality of belonging? Because if you can't imagine a new reality of belonging, then ultimately whatever you do will not last. It can't be sustained. If it continues to build borders, if it continues to build boundaries, if it continues to build cultural and ethnic, political and social cul-de-sacs, if it continues to do that, it will be short-lived. But if we can build together what is the unprecedented. And unprecedented that I suggest starts there in um, the gospel and starts there at the very heart of Christianity. Then we're moving towards something that already anticipates eternity. Well, my deepest thanks to Dr. Jennings for both his wisdom and also for his time. He's in the middle of a writing sabbatical and he stopped to talk with us. So thank you so much. Links to his work are in the show notes. If you could, please take a moment and tell us what you think of The New Activist. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your five stars and encouraging words are deeply helpful. And you can also use that space to recommend future guests. We got a great review from someone whose username is eyes to heaven. That's a good one. And the review is just titled Sam Macho and Joe Saxton. And they wrote, while this was my first exposure to Sam, he caught my attention with his story and with his hope and continued on saying of Joe that they have loved her voice, heart, passion for a while. Heard some new things today and need to get her book. To that end, Sam and Joe both have brand new books out. Go check out their books. And thank you for the reviews and for helping us know what resonates with you. The conversation that started here today will continue on our new activist social channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of them are new activist is one word. And our website is newactivist.is. A thanks to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. All things prop can be found at prophiphop.com or on Twitter at prophiphop. And today's show was produced by Christina Gore, hosted, directed by me, and there was additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Dr. Willie James Jennings, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. <laughs>